with AFIO now. We are a series of recordings of presentations from former U.S. intelligence officers with great stories to tell. And today's presenter certainly fits that category um, from every aspect. Uh, he is currently um, the head of the intelligence project at Brookings, also a senior fellow uh, on Middle East studies. Uh, he uh, is a retired senior CIA um, intelligence officer analyst, held a number of senior positions at CIA, DOD, and the National Security Council. But most important for today, he was the special assistant to the president and the Near East policy man at NSC during a very, very critical time during the summer and fall of 1990. Please welcome Bruce Whitehill. Hello, Bruce. Hello, Jim, and thanks very much for having me. Summer of 1990, particularly the evening of the 2nd of August, 1990, marked a fundamental transformation in American policy towards the Middle East. Put it in broader terms, up until 1990, the United States had generally avoided large-scale military intervention in the Middle East. There were a few exceptions to this. At the tail end of the Iran-Iraq War, uh, the United States Navy in particular got very involved in fighting the Iranians. Um, that was the exception to the rule. Most American military operations in the Middle East before 1990 tended to be short, brief, um, and we didn't leave residual forces behind. In 1990, the United States had in the Middle East basically a naval base in Bahrain, and that was it. August 1990 was the transformative period. We went from a naval base in Bahrain to bases in every one of the Gulf countries, and at our peak, in January, February 1991, over a half a million troops on the ground. When the war ended and Kuwait was liberated, we stayed in the region. Despite many people arguing we should leave, the United States stayed, and we've stayed ever since. And today we have somewhere around 40 to 50,000 troops in the broader, greater Middle East region. What happened? The Iraqi invasion of Kuwait. Did we anticipate the Iraqi invasion of Kuwait? Short term, we did very well. Longer term, not so good. At the end of the Iran-Iraq war, the judgment of the CIA was that Iraq was exhausted by its war with Iran. It was correct. Iraq was exhausted by its war with Iran. But it was also broke. It owed its immediate neighbors, Saudi Arabia and Kuwait and the United Arab Emirates, somewhere in the area of 50, 60 billion dollars. We don't have an exact figure. We weren't party to any of these deals. We weren't directly involved in them. But we knew that Iraq uh, was heavily indebted to its neighbors. Our perception was that Iraq would try to jawbone its neighbors into gradually turning most of these loans into gifts, things like that. We never anticipated that the Iraqi conclusion would be completely different. They're not just going to try to intimidate the bank. They're just going to grab the bank and take it full stock and barrel, and then take all the money in the bank. 
And then if they didn't want enough money there, they take the next bank next door. We didn't have a full understanding of the mentality of Saddam Hussein and how the Iraqi uh, political system worked. We developed, as I said, long-term, not so great. I had the fortune of being in Baghdad and Kuwait in June 1990. I remember vividly talking with Ambassador April Glaspie and others. I don't think a single person raised the notion that Iraq might invade Kuwait. Our focus was entirely on Iraq's threats to, as they call it, burn Israel. We knew that the Iraqis had developed long-range ballistic missiles, long-range by Middle East standards, uh, that could hit Israel. We also detected in the summer of, early summer of 1990, that they were building launch facilities uh, to fire these missiles from. These missiles were mobile, but usually you launch them from a fixed site because it gives you some degree of improved accuracy. Systems that were notoriously inaccurate. Uh, when I got back, again, weight didn't seem to be on the table until about the middle of July, 1990. Then Saddam Hussein began to make a series of speeches uh, and other prominent Iraqis about weight robbing uh, oil from Iraq. And most importantly, we saw an imagery around the 19th, 20th of July, the movement of eight divisions of the Iraqi Republican Guard down to the border. Uh, eight divisions of the Iraqi Republican Guard was probably seven divisions more than were going to be necessary to overwhelm uh, the Kuwaiti military. Kuwait had a, a tiny little military um, with very little experience. Uh, we immediately began warning uh, policymakers. Uh, President's daily brief, I recall, um, I think the 29th or 30th of July, uh, the headline was, Kuwait thinks Iraqis are bluffing. We don't. That was a pretty, pretty firm message. Of course, there's not very much that the president, George H.W. Bush, could do. Uh, Kuwait was not a treaty ally of the United States. We had no legal obligation to come to Kuwait's defense. The Kuwaitis didn't ask for American support. Uh, they, as I said in earlier, thought the um, Iraqis were bluffing. Uh, so did all the other Arab states. President Mubarak, uh, King Hussein, uh, King Fahd, all thought that this was a gigantic con job by the Iraqis uh, to get the Kuwaitis to work up a huge a gift of money uh, for the um, Iraqis. I can understand from the president's perspective, having sat in the National Security Council, the, the problem here. On the one hand, you have your intelligence agency telling you these very pieces of data, um, but they don't really have any conclusive evidence. Uh, they have the the order of battle, but they don't have conclusive evidence of what Saddam is going to do. And on the other hand, you have people in the region who know Saddam personally, who've met with him, um, and they're all saying the same thing. Uh, so the Bush administration, I think, adopted the policy of let's sit back and wait. Well, on the afternoon of August 2nd, it became absolutely clear to us, they're going. They're going, it's a matter of hours now, not days. They're going in a few 
power. Uh, we communicated this to the White House. Uh, we now know from the memoirs of uh, President Bush and, and others uh, that they were in the business of considering a phone call to Saddam Hussein when the news came across about nine o'clock in the evening uh, that the uh, Iraqis had gone into Kuwait. Uh, I had gone home late that day, uh, got home, barely had anything to eat, was called back in, and about midnight on the August 2nd, uh, I was uh, informed uh, on the video system that I was now the deputy chief of the Persian Gulf Task Force. Um, and that I was responsible for putting together a 24-hour task force to monitor events going on in the Middle East. August, of course, is a time when a lot of people in the United States government, including in the CIA, including everywhere, are on vacation. So imagine trying to put together a task force when half the office isn't there. Um, it, was, it was trying days. Uh, but we did, we did put it together. Uh, and the president made the decision uh, that famously, this will not stand. Uh, I accompanied the director, uh, William Webster, on I think three trips to the White House that first week in August. One immediately after the invasion, I think day right after, um, in which uh, there was generally a lack of consensus about what to do. Um, the president was visibly frustrated that his Secretary of State, Secretary of Defense, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs, and others uh, were not really on the same page. And at the end of the meeting, he instructed the director uh, to prepare a presentation on what does this all mean? Well, as I'm sure all of you realize, the director doesn't prepare those meetings, uh, the task force. Uh, and we prepared a, a short memo, talking points, uh, that essentially said uh, that if this is allowed to stand, uh, Iraq may well go on to attack other countries, and it will also set a standard for the post-Cold War period that international borders uh, can be violated with impunity, and that we needed to do something to ratify the territorial integrity uh, and inviability of borders. Uh, the director did present this next meeting, the next day, and according to all accounts, we have accounts from Scowcroft, the National Security Advisor, General uh, Powell, uh, President Bush himself. Uh, this presentation helped to pull the national security team together on a determined course of action. And with that, Freeman, um, Secretary of State Baker began building this enormous international coalition. First success, of course, was Russia. Uh, just months before, um, the uh, Soviet Union had been our adversary. Uh, Secretary Baker was able to persuade the uh, uh, Soviet Union uh, to join us uh, in condemning Iraq's invasion. Very important because Iraq had been a Soviet client uh, for 30 or 40 years. The Europeans came on board. The Saudis were uh, reluctant. They weren't sure what to do. 
uh, and Secretary of Defense Cheney was sent out uh, to persuade them to come around. Uh, Cheney wanted to have a briefer go with him, one of our analysts, uh, to brief the intelligence. Uh, I mistakenly uh, picked my best military analyst, uh, who did go out, did a, a bang-up job as I knew he would, and was immediately requested by the embassy to stay on permanently. For the next six weeks, I got a phone call every day from his wife saying, where's my husband? What have you done with my husband? Finally, after six weeks, we got him back. Um, so in addition to the, the big strategic problems of what are the Iraqis going to do, how many allies will we have, how many troops should we put on the field, also had to deal with the more mundane questions of how do I get my analyst back so his wife stops calling me every day. I think the next really significant moment came on the 5th of August, only a few days later. On the 5th of August, uh, which was a, a weekend, I think it may have been a Sunday. Um, uh, I was home. I got a phone call from um, duty officer of the task force on duty uh, in operations. Uh, and you need to get in here. You need to get in here right now. Right now. Fortunately, I, I lived less than 10 minutes away. I drove in, and sure enough, he had unmistakable proof that the Iraqis were getting ready to invade. What do I mean by that? We had imagery that showed that the Iraqis had moved the armored division, Republican Guard, right up to the Kuwaiti border. And that right behind the armor was uh, gasoline, uh, ammunition, all the kinds of things you have to have right up in front lines if you got them. Um, they were primed and ready to go. <clears throat> we immediately alerted the White House and everybody else. And a few hours later, uh, Roger Webster and I were back in the cabinet room, the White House, um, with the president, with the national security advisor, secretary of defense, chairman of the Joint Chiefs. Uh, Brent Stokroft turns to Judge Webster and says, well, could you give us a briefing on what the military situation is? The judge, immediately turned to me. I was sitting right behind him. Uh, Judge Webster was a great guy, he's a great guy, very smart, but he was no military analyst. Um, he had no expertise. Uh, and I don't, I don't think he ever studied a whole lot of satellite imagery. Uh, so I wasn't surprised he passed the ball off, but he did. I explained, uh, what we had seen, what was building up there, and that we had other pieces of information that all looked at the Iraqis preparing to invade Saudi Arabia. We didn't have a conclusive piece of evidence that Saddam had made this decision, but the evidence on the ground was conclusive. And I concluded by saying, this is it. Uh, we have no more, there's no more warning time. They can go at any moment now. And uh, Scowcroft uh, 
then turns to General Powell and said to General Powell, well, I call him, what do you think? And I have to tell you, my heart stopped beating. Here was a genuine American national hero, someone who I got to know later on quite well, but I didn't know at all, uh, sitting at the table, uh, and he could, in one sentence, devastate us completely. Instead, he simply said, we're fully in agreement with the CIA's judgment. And I think from that moment in the meeting, I basically passed out. I don't mean I physically passed out, but you know, I really wasn't focusing anymore on what they were talking about. I'd done my part, and I was I was quite um, the um, president himself. Uh, a very rare moment came out to the agency uh, later in August. Uh, wanted to see task force facilities uh, in the Situation Room. Um, I don't think they were. Calling was all that very impressive. It's a tiny little room, six or seven people in it, pieces of paper all over the place. Uh, it didn't have that look that you acquire uh, from watching uh, television or movies about the situation room or the operations center or things like that. Uh, but he did come out, which was a great boost to morale gave everybody a sense that they really were in, they were really involved in this and the intelligence mattered a lot. Um, we then proceeded uh, through months of the buildup of American forces and the decision around Thanksgiving uh, to go from a quarter million to a half a million uh, with the decision that they were going to go to war. Um, I spent endless hours um, at the Senate and House uh, briefing and Intelligence committees, foreign affairs committees, armed services committees on the situation. Uh, there were people who didn't agree with the decision to go to war. Famously, Joe Biden was one of them. Uh, to be fair to those who didn't agree, most of them didn't agree. Most of them agreed that this was a serious crisis. Nobody downplayed the importance of the crisis. But there were many people who wanted to give the economic sanctions longer uh, to work on Iraq rather than burden to the military. On uh, our judgment was the economic sanctions, while significant, would never force Iraq to do it. And I think history proved us uh, correct in that regard. The other thing, we big questions we were getting was, will Iraq fire missiles at Israel? We said, absolutely. No doubt about it. First night of the war, they would fire missiles at Israel. Will they use chemical weapons? And here, I have to admit, we kind of were all over the map. Um, we definitely said they had the capability. We knew they had the capability to use chemical weapons. Uh, we were somewhat doubtful uh, that they would actually use them because the risk then would be the United States would come back uh, to tactical nuclear weapons. Uh, who knows? One thing we didn't know at the time what we learned much later was that King Hussein of Jordan uh, met with the Israelis in London uh, in the first week of January 1991. Uh, and the Israelis told him uh, that if uh, Iraq fired missiles at Israel, it would retaliate. 
And the king then asked, what if the missiles have chemical weapons? And the then chief of staff of the Israeli Defense Forces, General Ehud Barak, on to be prime minister later on, said to the king, a chemical weapon is fired at Israel on a ballistic missile. Look at your watch. 45 minutes later, an Iraqi city will be obliterated, meaning they would be. Uh, we didn't know that at the time, or at least the intelligence community really didn't know that. Maybe the president knew that, maybe Cheney knew that. I doubt it. But that certainly sent the message uh, right into the Iraq. Let me just sum up by saying this. Uh, the air war lasted more than a month of stage for the very brief ground war. Um, we and Defense Intelligence Agency and CENTCOM uh, had a big fight at the end of the air war. Uh, they were convinced that the Iraqi armored forces decimated because they listened to the pilots. Pilots naturally report back when they fly a mission that they hit all their targets. We relied on imagery of the damaged tanks, and the imagery showed many of those tanks were, were hit, but continued to operate and move around. So we realized that the Republican Guard was actually badly damaged, but not destroyed. That played an important role in the decision at the end of the war, whether or not to continue on. Basically, CENTCOM said they were done. We said, we don't think you're as done as you think you are, but it's you know not our decision to make. And with those leftover parts of the Republican Guard, Saddam Hussein, of course, brutally suppressed first a Shia uprising and then a Kurdish uprising. And the suppression of the Kurdish uprising led to the creation of Operation Provide Comfort and the permanent stationing of American military forces in Turkey uh, to fly a no-fly zone more than Iraq, no-fly zone that continued in the 2003 invasion. Um, I also got one more promotion, uh, which I'll end on. Uh, in uh, May of uh, 1991, Brent um, Scowcroft invited me to come to the National Security Council and be the director for Gulf and South Affairs. So I went from being chief of intelligence, being the policymaker responsible for the intelligence, uh, which I had delivered earlier. Um, it was a uh, very heady experience. Uh, I enjoyed it tremendously. I will have to admit that the first few days, I was scared to death about what was going on around me. Um, but I picked it up, fortunately. I also had the good luck of working for Richard Haas, uh, who was a great uh, mentor, uh, and also Bob Gates, who is uh, still there as the Deputy National Security. Uh, let me finish there, Jim, and take any questions you might have. Bruce, that's a great first-hand account of a critical period in our history, and particularly the role that um, intelligence played. Um, I know well that you made a habit during your long career of being in the right place at the wrong time <laughs> on a number of events. As we discovered uh, and discussed uh, earlier, this grand coalition that was built um, by President Bush and his advisors was really rather unique in our history. 
And um, there probably were several um, critical factors in that success, including persuading the Israelis to stay out of the war, um, which would have meant um, the Arab coalition members leaving immediately. Would you like to talk a little bit about that? Certainly. Um, we, uh, the, the whole point, Saddam Hussein firing ballistic missiles uh, at Tel Aviv, most of the fire, uh, was precisely that. Get the Israelis to intervene. Once they intervene, then the uh, Arab coalition would fall apart. But it's important to remember just how big the Arab coalition was. It wasn't just the six Gulf states led by Saudi Arabia. Uh, it also put two divisions on the ground in Saudi Arabia, uh, included Syria, which was uh, at the time the most rejectionist uh, anti-Israeli uh, country in the region, which also sent a division uh, to Saudi Arabia. Uh, and there were forces from Morocco and other states as well. So it was a, a large Arab coalition long as it was not an Arab-Israeli war altogether, but if it became an Israeli-Arab war, Israel has never failed to retaliate for an attack by one of its neighbors on Israelis believe strongly that only through deterrence uh, that the state of Israel survives. Um, the intelligence community uh, was tasked by the White House uh, to do everything we could to hold the Israelis' hands. Uh, and literally, uh, I met every single day the entire air war and ground war uh, with the local Israeli Secret Intelligence Service representative uh, to go over the situation as we knew it. Uh, this, of course, does not what kept Israel from intervening, uh, but it did show the importance um, that the White House uh, and the director placed on uh, trying to persuade them not to go in. What persuaded them not to go in in the end um, was something that uh, Brent Scowcroft, Brent Scowcroft, of course, was an Air Force general. Uh, he'd been a pilot earlier in his career. Uh, and he knew that for two independent air forces operate in the same area, in the same airspace, they had to share certain electronic warning measures, uh, codes uh, that told you whether this plane is a friend or foe. Uh, usually, we shared these codes uh, with any of our friends. We certainly shared the code with all of the partners in the coalition allowed us to identify who the Iraqi plans were through the coalition. Uh, Brent decided he would not share the codes with Israel. Um, it was a very clever way. The Israeli Air Force understood exactly what it meant. They understood that meant that if they flew into Iraqi airspace, they would be at risk of being shot down by American planes. They didn't make it public. It was a extraordinary step to take, uh, and the fact that very few Israelis were actually killed in the ballistic missile attacks um, sent the message to the Israelis that it wasn't worth it. I'll let the Americans do it. Um, 
He also learned after the fact uh, that the Israelis didn't plan on just sending airplanes. Their plan was to lift a brigade of Israeli paratroopers over Jordan into Western Iraq and hunt for the ballistic missiles on the ground with their own commandos. Uh, that would have really expanded. Wouldn't have just been a few Israeli airstrikes. Would have been Israeli troops on the ground in Iraq when the coalition was trying very hard to say, we don't plan on holding on to any Iraqi territory when this is over. And of course, it would have also meant war in Jordan and Israel. Um, so it was a critical moment. Uh, I think it's safe to say that if we'd had bad luck and an Israqi scud had hit a I don't know, a daycare facility or a, a high school uh, or an elementary school and killed 30 or 40 kids, would have all gone the other way. Uh, fortunately, uh, for once, luck was on our side um, and we were able to avoid that nightmarish outcome. Bruce, thank you for telling us um, a great story from the U.S. intelligence community. I know that you have many other interesting experiences and stories to tell. I hope that you will come back again uh, very soon and join us again. I would be delighted. Okay. Thanks again. Goodbye, everybody. Come again soon.